0: Uh, The Queen of Spades is a story about a single-minded obsession. And like, of course, the very best operas, it's about two great themes, death and desire. And perhaps fate too, uh, an idea that seems, of course, to have haunted the composer Tchaikovsky. Indeed, this opera was composed between his fourth and his fifth symphonies, both of which take up that idea of fate, fairly uh, obviously. The opera began as a story by Pushkin, Russia's greatest poet, And Pushkin, in his original story, makes his readers guess whether the Queen of Spades, which he wrote between 1833 and 1834, is based on reality or not, often within the story and in what he said about the story, blurring the boundaries between fact and fiction. But he did tell a friend there was a true story behind the essential element in the plot. His prototype for the Countess was, he said, Princess Natalia Petrovna Golitsnya, who lived between 1741 and 1837. In her youth, she had been a maid of honour to Catherine the Great, and indeed, as the Countess in the Opera does, or had done, lived in Paris in the 1780s. It was her grandson who told Pushkin about the time he'd lost money in gambling and had asked his grandmother to help. She didn't give him money, but she told him about three winning cards. Do try, the grandmother is supposed to have said. The grandson did try and he won. The rest of the story, said Pushkin, is entirely fiction. So, we must make up our own mind. I ought to tell you also that the real Countess, far from being the Muscovite Venus that we hear about in the opera, celebrated for her beauty uh, and her other charms, was actually nicknamed in reality Princess Moustache. <laughs> when in 1890 Tchaikovsky, modest Tchaikovsky that is, adapted a pre-existing libretto of Pushkin's story for his brother, he changed the dates. The young army officer Herman, who is determined to prize the secret of the three winning cards from the old Countess, is moved back from the 1830s to the time of Catherine the Great. Was Modest Tchaikovsky perhaps remembering his brother's intense love for the music and the period of Mozart, the Rococo? Although based on Pushkin's story, the opera makes a great many departures from it. The greatest difference concerns Lisa, who in the story, that's Pushkin's story, sees Herman as an escape route from her tedious life as the old Countess's ward. In the opera, however, she is the old lady's granddaughter, who abandons a brilliant engagement with Prince Yeletsky, and that's an entirely invented character in the libretto, in a sudden passion for the enigmatic Herman who has been stalking her uh, in the early part of the opera. The relationship between Lisa and Herman ends in a double suicide with Lisa jumping into the winter canal when she realises that Herman's obsession is not with her, but indeed the three cards that he hopes will win him a fortune. I have to tell you that this canal scene is also invention of the brothers Tchaikovsky as is Herman's own suicide. Tchaikovsky completed the full score of the opera in just 44 days, astonishing achievement, while staying in Florence. And while he was composing the work, uh, he wrote to his brother Modest that he found himself deeply moved by the story. When setting the scene of his hero's death, he wrote, I was suddenly overcome by such compassion for Herman that I began to weep. The first performance was in St. Petersburg in December 1890, and it was a complete triumph. Particularly for the tenor Nikolai Figner, who, as Herman, appears in all seven scenes of this opera. It's an astonishingly difficult and a role that requires great endurance. As the composer wrote later, Figner and the St. Petersburg Orchestra are the ones who made the true miracles. Well, we have a quartet of guests tonight to explore Tchaikovsky's opera and to talk about uh, that essential part in any dramatic performance here at English National Opera, the props. The conductor, Abel Gardner, whose last production as Music Director of English National Opera This Is, will be with us in a while, and so will Paul Jones, props workshop manager for the company. Now it's your chance to discover if you can eat those sumptuous feasts that are served on stage at the Coliseum, and whether Herman's Gun is loaded when he makes that fatal night call on the Countess. But first. There were the Sabetso soprano Anna Huntley, who is covering the role of Pauline, Paulina, in David Alden's production, and Nicholas Ansel Evans, a senior member of the music staff here at English National Opera. Will you please welcome Anna Huntley and Nicholas Ansel Evans? Anna, let me start by asking you, um, who exactly is pa- Are we going to call her Paulina or Pauline?
1: Um, Paulina? Paulina, in as far as the surtitles titles are concerned, yeah. Okay. Paulina, yeah. What
0: are we going Who is she?
1: In... Oh, this is a difficult question, as I was just saying to you earlier, because we have um, Pushkin's Paulina, Tchaikovsky's Paulina, and our Paulina tonight, actually very differently played. Um, she is in the opera and still in our production, she's still um, the companion to Lisa, um, but in Pushkin's version, she's actually a princess, and she's mentioned a couple of times, a couple of little lines that are written about her, and she becomes Tomsky's love interest in the Pushkin version, and eventually they do get married.
0: Tomsky being another of the brother officers of Herman.
1: Uh, yes, but in the Pushkin, he's actually, he's the grand he's the grandson of the countess, so it's very slightly different. But in here we have um, Tomsky is one of the, the soldiers, and uh, he uh, there is in the actual opera there's not much to to necessarily link Tomsky and uh, Paulina, except in our production they are linked, um, and I don't know how much you yet know about the production, but it's um, slightly different, and she is. Basically, a high-class prostitute, um, on most of the time on drugs or is drunk, and so in um, this production, she she and Tomsky are linked, which actually there is a there is a call for that if you connect it with the Pushkin story, and they are linked, and he is kind of her pimp. In this, and um, but she, she is actually in this story. She, I suspect because when you get to the the, se- the scene that she first sings in, and she's surrounded by Lisa and the girls, um, she is obviously part of their set. So perhaps we discuss. Perhaps she was brought up, and she is um, she is uh, in the same class as Lisa, and they were brought up together, maybe old friends, but that they um, obviously have gone down different paths, and. Uh, so in, in the actual production, you'll see that Lisa's dressed very differently and she looks like she stands out and doesn't um, match with them. So does that answer the question?
0: Yes, a nice girl gone to the bad in space. one really yeah. might say. Ladies and gentlemen, if you look at the screen to my left, you'll see images from tonight's production. So you can begin to get some sense of the visual or well, the look of, of it. Um, in a way, um, Paulina, is everything that Lisa isn't, isn't she?
1: Yeah, I think, well especially in this production, um, she, as I said, I, I think they have been brought up together, that's why they sing the first duet they sing together, they obviously know it's a song they both know and have sung together, they must have be, um, somehow have had that history together, otherwise why would she be even in that? Party scene, um, so they have a similarity, I think, from that point of view. But they obviously have gone down different routes. And even if you didn't have this take on it, they are different. Um,
0: she seems utterly indifferent to the world about her. Is that simply because she's um, on substances?
1: Yeah, basically. Yeah, it's actually the thing is that it actually at first when I first heard this, I was I wasn't I wasn't sure how to get my head around it but actually it actually makes her aria very poignant she's used and abused throughout the whole opera which you will see and um, and really you know she she has literally just gone down the wrong path and um, and now she is she is in the same way as Herman is is beholden to the gambling and the cards. She becomes trapped in this cycle with with the drugs. So she has to do what she has to do to get that because she's addicted. And in then in the aria she sings how once you know she she was you know the, how things were lovely and how lo- things are lovely for the girls who she's singing to. But uh, you know she soon realised that love wasn't all meant it was meant to be, and uh, she's obviously been cheated very um, much out of her destiny, I guess.
0: So, in a way, this becomes an opera as much about addiction as about very fate, yeah. really, which, which these two characters, at the heart of it, are both addicted to different kinds yeah. of things.
1: And the uncertainty, which I think is also in the Pushkin story, that there's an uncertainty there really as to... there's a lot of questions left um, unanswered in that story. And I think it's the same here.
0: This is a role that clearly demands a great deal more from whoever sings the role of mm-hmm. as an actor on yeah. stage than usual. Tell us some of the things that you, that you have to do. Really? Well, the things that can be shared with a, with a family audience.
1: That, yeah, I'm quite limited to what I can say. We'll draw a veil over <laughs> the other things. Yeah, it took me a few weeks to tell my mum and dad.
0: Well, we don't think we need yeah. to this. <laughs> but, but other, th- other things I mean in terms of how it, do, how do we first see her I mean, we don't see a nice yeah, school friend uh,
1: yeah. so if you first it, it's actually quite nice um, what is because she, she doesn't she, in the actual opera she doesn't have that much to sing, and she just has sort of a usually just a couple of scenes that she sings in and actually because of this they have the role is has been padded out or whatever but that's really great because you see the relationships that she has but also how other people are reflected their characters are reflected in the way they treat her as well um, so you first see her with the with the men at the be- at the beginning, and actually it is a great acting role because um, you really yeah and it, and it's not just it's not vacuous it's it's really there is a real heart behind it and a real story there for her, from her point of view so that is actually really fun um, you have to obviously the whole drunk thing and the whole drugs being on drugs that it's, it's quite a fine line to get I think you have to try and cross you know what that carefully
0: how, how difficult is. Uh, the the singing. How difficult is
1: the is the, the singing singing's not actually too difficult. Um, it's the tessitura is quite low, um, and so you have to just make sure that you project uh, over the orchestra. But actually, most of her solo bits are the the exposed bits, so with just with piano on stage. So actually, that's quite nice.
0: Nicholas, can we turn to you? Um, is this an opera that you've worked on before you came to work on this
2: production? No, no, this is my first time. Queen of Spades and uh, very exciting it is too. And what when you first opened, I often wonder this, what were your first reactions when you opened the score on a
0: work you didn't really know?
2: Um, well, actually, it's my first Tchaikovsky opera as well because I've, I've never actually worked on a production of Von Yegin, Um and I just thought, what amazingly passionate, um, uh, fiery um, music. Uh, it's just incredible. It's also a score of great variety um, there's so many different styles and things that Tchaikovsky wants to put into it. As if he just wants to put his whole soul and his whole life into it. Sometimes I think it it almost feels like it's going to to burst apart with all these different things he's put into it, and yet somehow it doesn't. It's it's, it's marvellous. Are there other musical motifs, themes that run all the way through the piece? There, 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 there are, and um, his it's a. His motif uh, developments quite subtle actually, and um, you don't always spot it the first time. It took me a while while I was playing it before I really noticed how, in fact, a lot of the the melodies grow out of each other. And if you just allow me to just demonstrate, for example, um, there's there's a motif which um, seems to demonstrate um, Hermann's love for Lisa. Now when. At a certain point in, in, in when he's approaching her, it, it's very obsessive. Um, so it's, it comes out something like this. This kind of throbbing uh, bass line carrying on. But when Lisa's thinking of him, it's much more plaintive. first you might not realise they're actually the same theme um, and then it becomes the love duet and um, it even becomes uh, Hermann's final aria what? Um, so um, yeah there's also one motif you'll definitely hear a lot Very uh, heavily chromatic rising uh, figure, which um, portrays the, 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 the countess 's um, secret, the gambling the, the winning something there 's something devilish about it.
0: Does Tchaikovsky develop these themes symphonically? I mean, should we see this as a a Wagnerian score? I mean, by this stage, he'd been to Bayreuth, he'd seen the ring at the first performances. Uh, uh,
2: Absolutely, there's there's definitely those influences at work. I think Tchaikovsky's approach to it is very different from Wagner's, really. Um, If we can just digress for a moment, Wagner's use of motifs is so um, uh, deep in, in terms of the construction of the music that when you look inside the score, you often find in Wagner that even the little accompanying figures in the strings or whatever are actually derived from motifs. So I think Tchaikovsky, he's much more Russian and earnest and, and uh, it's, I don't want to use the word crude, it's absolutely not, That's very sophisticated, but it's, they come come at you in, in blocks and, and melodies and um, yeah, it's,
0: I I suggested that that the modernists move the story back to the time of the Empress Catherine, who makes a brief appearance, of course, um, in a rather grand moment, Mm. um, at a ball, um, because, of course, his brother was utterly bewitched by Mozart and and couldn't resist uh, uh, writing Mozartian Tchaikovsky. Is that true of this opera too?
2: Well, there's a very um, special and unusual um, pastoral interlude um, where... The themes you 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 all spot the Mo- which Mozartian themes um, they 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 seem to be derived mm-hmm. from. It's a real surprise actually, and it's a counterpoise to the incredible romanticism and, and passion of the rest of the opera. Um, but in fact, the themes of the pastoral are the both the musical themes and the emotional themes are linked to the main story. So it appears to be played out in this kind of Mozartian innocence, but actually, it's not really.
0: I shouldn't just say that you may think pastoral, but you may not think pastoral after you've seen this production.
2: But but in fact, what what I can say for the way um, David Alden has staged it, is that the the undertones of of, of unease um, are are brought out very clearly.
0: How, what a kind of challenge is this opera for the singers I mean Herman, for example,
2: oh. is virtually never off stage it's money, it's that is something um, that is a real um, really uh, challenging role um, and um, we're very very lucky to have peter hall 's wonderful performance which is um, which you will enjoy it's so so full of passion and commitment and um, I think that the the roles of the Countess and the uh, and Eliza are easier in their way, but and but are are wonderful roles. I mean, Felicity Palmer, you you'll see how gloriously she inhabits the Countess, and and Giselle Allen is is the most wonderfully passionate and committed, as well as vocally assured Eliza. What are you
0: and Anna going to perform for us?
2: Um, well, Paulina has an aria which, in fact, is accompanied by a piano on stage. In, in Tchaikovsky's original conception, the singer herself would have accompanied her. It's really supposed to be a harpsichord, remember, we're, we're in, we're in uh, the 1780s here, and um, so it's a very simple part that, that perhaps a singer could have played. Um, but it's usually done with a piano on stage. So, uh, maybe um, Anna will say a word about the aria <laughs> <laughs> too. Um,
1: so this is, this, yeah, her first scene, she's just done the duet with Lisa and all the, the girls surrounding think it's wonderful and they say how marvellous you are. And uh, can you sing us another song? So Lisa says to Paulina, can you go on then? you sing one, one more?
2: And Everyone's expecting something really cheerful and they get this. Thank
0: Nicholas Ansel Evans. Thank you both very much indeed. Our next guest is a member of one of the most essential departments in any opera house, the props department. Will you please welcome Paul Jones, who is props workshop manager here at English National Opera. Pull the microphone Hello. towards you, Paul. Paul, um... A very simple question. So how on earth did you get involved with props? How did your life in props begin?
3: I I suppose for for me, it began when I was very small and uh, would often be making little monsters out of plasticine, that kind of thing, and uh, then progressed through school. Not particularly academic, but uh, my teachers would often say to me, you know, um, you're never going to get anywhere making Little, little monsters out of plasticine. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think i proved them a bit wrong. So
0: <laughs> How many people are there in the props department here, do you know?
3: All right. Um, in, you know, props, there's a head of props. Underneath him, there's two full-time supervisors that run each show. And then there's myself and a deputy props workshop manager. And we, we're in charge of uh, anything that is made um, on the on the stage,
0: and is there a line between what you do in props, what happens in costumes, <clears> um, uh, and maybe what happens also in, in headdresses? I mean, are there kind of demarcations about where one department uh, leaves the, the brief, as it were?
3: Yeah, it's um, it's a bit of a grey area, really, generally, because um, there's there's props, there's costume props, and then there's costume. Uh, and, and in between, you'll you'll you'd have things like uh, armour, which which isn't really a costume, but you wear it. But a seamstress wouldn't make it; an armourer would make it. So it might come to us. Um, What's a costume prop? A, cos- yeah, a costume prop is is something like uh, anything with a um, armour, any, anything like that, or, or a robot. Or Mr. Blobby, or anything that you wear right. that's 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 not made by a seamstress uh, or, or, a, or a, a milliner, I guess.
0: And, and at what stage do you, uh, in the props department, become involved with the production?
3: Uh, so pr- pretty early on, when when a, a design team come up with the with the idea and they get the go ahead to 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 make stuff, they'll make little maquette models in a model box of the show, sort of like a little, little maquette of what they envisage doing, and they bring that to us, and then we kind of price up elements, and, and, uh, and so we'll, we'll be involved at that stage, trying to, to, trying to show the rest of the Coliseum what, what, what this is going to cost to do.
0: And is that um, a moment where you have to say no sometimes, that you can't have a full-scale dinosaur uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex on the stage with that yeah. budget?
3: Well, I, I would make that happen no matter what, <laughs> if, if we, if we uh, got that. We, we've never said no to any, any make that they've asked us. We've said you can't afford it, uh, but never know. So.
0: And, and do you make everything in-house?
3: Yeah, we, we try and do everything in-house because uh, it's, it's, well, economically it makes more sense for us to do it because if we sent it out to a company, then they'd have to put... a. Um, uh, 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 you know, extra charge for for profit. Whereas within the, the year, no, we can we can usually do it for cheaper than than outside. So we try and do most most things.
0: Are, are there other things you borrow from other companies?
3: Um, we we don't tend to borrow things because because we send a lot of our shows out to other countries and and other opera houses. So if we borrowed it from someone, they're not really going to be that happy that it's going to. the the Met for (laughs) for six months or whatever. So we tend to try and buy everything. We don't hire anything either for that reason um, because um, we we may need to send it to a different country at any moment.
0: You you said that you began very small making models at school, um, which really leads me to ask, what do you think the essential skills that a prop maker needs?
3: Um, Yeah, there are various courses that you can do for, for prop making, but I tend to find that the students from those courses um, they, they never teach you everything you need to know there 's just too much kind of it 's more of an attitude to have to kind of uh, put these skills into different areas because every season they ask you to do something completely different from from you know realistic babies to magnetic cups that stick to trays or wheel, chairs, endless chairs. Uh, There are a lot of chairs in this production. There are a lot. This has been the the chair opera, but most of the time we are repairing chairs.
0: (laughs) But presumably also materials have changed, even in your relatively short life in props. I mean, uh, plastics and all sorts of other kind of fabrics have emerged. Um, Do you have to be on top of kind of these sort of
3: developments? Yeah, you, you, we, we do actually. I mean, a lot of the stuff that we, we uh, have, you know, there's a lot of dangerous things. We have little uh, skull and crossbone on most things. It's, it's <laughs> like being a pirate um, and just as yeah. dangerous. Uh, but we, yeah, and ten, modern technology is moving on to, re, to sort of replace us because 3D printing is, is going to replace me one day. You'll have a 3D printer sat here. <laughs> um, Perish the thought. We
0: shall all be dead by then, hopefully.
3: <laughs> well, you know, within, within 10 years or so, I think.
0: OK, the big question. What's the most difficult thing you've ever been asked mm. to make?
3: OK. Um, well, it's, the, the, it's probably one of the best and the most difficult, but um, uh, a few seasons ago, we had to make a giant uh, Mustang airplane. Uh, American warplane, war plane and, uh, and it was all we were all very excited about it but uh, we were slightly worried about how to do the chrome uh, finish on it it was very expensive to get something chromed and uh, but luckily when the model came in it was, it was covered in pink glitter so, <laughs> uh, so all we had to do was, was glitter it up that wasn't the big challenge the challenge was that uh, in our workshop we've only got a door that big, uh, so it all had to come into pieces, yeah. And the ultimate uh, airfix
0: kit. Yeah, yeah,
3: <laughs> absolutely. And,
0: uh, and what kind of things can go wrong in performance? Are, are, is one of you always there in the wings in case something happens?
3: The, there's a different set of, of prop people that are involved in, in the onstage props, they called called onstage props, but uh, um, so, sometimes, you know, it'll be, it'll be user error, uh, and, and uh, no, the, m- most of the time things get damaged when, uh, when we've not built them strong enough.
0: Uh, <laughs> I'm thinking about the chairs in tonight's performance. Oh,
3: they're constantly in need of repair, constantly.
0: What, apart uh, from the chairs in this production of Queen of Spades, what, what other challenges did the production give you? Um
3: there's there's a few angels uh that are in the show which which were uh, were really good fun to make and uh, i'm not going to tell you how we made them because it might sort of uh spoil your your enjoyment of how they made um but maybe maybe we'll put it on the website or something uh, uh, how we actually did them so okay.
0: and these are angels that that are all the way around the set aren't they
3: there's three all together, uh, and there's some of them move, move around. And,
0: and they're rather sinister figures. A
3: little bit, yeah. Did but they know? wouldn't be so sinister if you knew where they came from.
0: Well, <laughs> to, I, think, I think we'll leave it there. Paul Jones, thank you very thank much you. indeed. Ladies and gentlemen, will you welcome now our last guest, our final guest, Edward Gardner, not making, as we now know, his final appearance in the pit here at the Coliseum, but the Queen of Spades is his final appearance here as English National Opera's music director. Edward Gardner. <laughs> Hi. You pull that towards you. Edward, um, was there a particular reason for choosing Queen of Spades as your f- uh, final final opera as music director?
4: I don't think so. I think... Good evening, everyone, by the way. It's lovely to see you. You're, I guess you're all coming to the show tonight, aren't you? That makes sense. Yeah. Um, well, it, have any of you seen the show? Did any of you see the first performance as well? well no, no, so it's a completely new audience. Well... It's a piece, I love Tchaikovsky, I completely adore Tchaikovsky, but especially, historically, I've loved Onegin. That's the piece that I've obsessed about, basically, for three decades. Um, And I really wanted to do Queen of Space, because I knew it was its equal, but actually, when I learned it, I had real trouble with it, because it's not Onegin. Every page, the music takes you away from Onegin. But actually what you then discover is how dramatically incisive it is in a way that On Onyegin isn't. On Onyegin gives you these, these sheets of sound, these waves, and this piece gives you completely concise, dramatic thread.
0: In a way that's perhaps caught in the, in the fact that Negin is called lyric scenes, whereas this is unmistakably described on the page of the score as an opera.
4: That's right, yeah. I mean, I always think that lyric scenes is something to do with the countryside as much as anything, actually, but yeah.
0: Um, It is very different from Njögin, but what would you say were its particular qualities? What are the things that you hear in this piece that, that have produced admiration from you?
4: The chorus singing, of course, I mean, on a Verdian scale, actually. I mean, the storm lasts for about 30 seconds as opposed to Othello's three minutes, but it's really impactful. I mean, all the, all the chorus writing is amazing. Uh, it's much more expanded than, than Onyegin. Um, and comes more from Mussorgsky's tradition, I would say. You know, I mean, it's really... It's grand Russian opera, in that sense. Um, everything amazes me about it, to be honest with you, now I'm in mean it. I mean, the, this journey of Hermann's madness through the music, which Tchaikovsky frames for such a romantic soul. He frames it with such brutality and, and, and strange color. Um, the, the, um, the, the, uh, the Countess, the old Countess, Felicity Palmer, I mean, her music is amazing. I know the aria was, was, was lifted from a much earlier opera, but, but the way that scene, which comes for you guys tonight, just after the interval, seeps down into nighttime is, is completely ravishing.
0: How does Tchaikovsky achieve the very particular colour of this opera? What's he doing in the pit? What, what's he got? What, what kind of instrumentation is he using?
4: That's a, interesting, another interesting... You always do this to me. I have to think Sorry. more than I've ever thought before. Um, how does one answer that? I think... Um, Look, it's unmistakably Tchaikovsky. There's there's one thing. It it doesn't come off the page as easily as Onegin does. That's what I certainly found that in, in the orchestral rehearsals. Um, but what actually Nicholas and I talked about during our, our our production rehearsals is I kept hearing this Berlioz sound in it low trombones and high flutes that that happens at the beginning of the third act. Um, and the sort of dramatic intention, the drinking songs, you know, all that, all that kind of thing, which isn't really Tchaikovsky. But then, I mean, you may have brushed on this already, but he, I, I found out that he was, he was sort of obsessed about Berlioz. and I, You never really connect those two people, but Tchaikovsky gave a speech in French for Berlioz, in praise of Berlioz, when he came to St Petersburg. And I think Damnation of Faust is really a model for this piece.
0: Do you think he's also been reading... As his own account of orchestration. I mean, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, for example, the absence of brass in quite the way you would expect mm. in a Tchaikovsky work.
4: Yeah, yeah, it's, it's very subtle, isn't it, yeah. actually, the brass writing? Little tubers and bass trombones together in thirds and, mm. and nothing else. Um, I don't know, but I think he obsessed about Damnation of Faust. I think he really got to know what it was.
0: And that idea of Faust, of course, would tie dramatically with the character of Herman. Yeah, it's exactly. You can see where that idea yeah. comes yeah. from. Edward, hey, um, you've been a music director here at the National Opera for eight years. Uh, if I asked you rather crudely, what do you think the most uh, uh, your principal achievements are? What, what are the things that have given you the greatest sense of pride in what you've done here?
4: I can ask that question a lot, actually, and it's kind of—it's very hard to pinpoint because often it's the way the strings turn a phrase or the colour, the sheen on the sound in a Puccini opera, you know. it's a very, it's a, For me, it's a very specific thing that I feel like I've achieved what I was looking for. But there have been so many. I mean, the auction, course, has been so wonderful over these nine years. It, there are so many instances of that. I think there are two things which I felt paternally proud about that we showed the outside world what we do at the highest level. One of those has to be Master Singers earlier this season. And the other one actually was taking Peter Grimes to the Proms because it's, it's great when we do our our, our our shows at ENO, but actually um, the Proms is the music festival of the highest international standard. And to go there and, and perform, everyone performs so extraordinarily was, uh, was wonderful.
0: And one particular work that, that, that you, Uh, uh, got to learn because you chose to do it, uh, that has given you enormous pleasure and lingers on and you want to to, to perhaps do again?
4: Oh, there are a lot of those, actually, yeah. Yeah, and how you do them differently. I mean, it's very strange doing all your first pieces in the spotlight of London theatre life, you know. Um, Boris was a huge revelation to me, and I didn't really expect it to be. I found found it miraculous. I found everything that Shostakovich isn't, dare I say, it's sort of, it's subtle and it's... It's not written down on the page and it's just, it has incredible gravitas without trying too hard.
0: Any regrets for things that you haven't done that you would like to have done?
4: You... yeah, maybe. Um, full stop. but we... it had just happened a lot, actually, by the time I came. You know, Andrew Shaw did that lovely production of Matthew Raukes. Um I mean, I, if I'd have stayed longer, or if I'd have started the job sooner, I'd have done more Wagner, I think, but I wasn't... A ring, perhaps? We, well, we talked about it, actually, but we just felt we couldn't cast it at the time when we were doing it, but I'd have done, di- yeah, I'd love to have done Parsifal, but I wouldn't have done it, I wouldn't, I didn't want to do it at the time when it was done last, because I, I felt too, I didn't feel ready for it.
0: But you're coming back to do Tristan next season. Yeah. So you're halfway there. Yes, you it's could, true. Yeah. Yes, in a way. Yeah. <laughs> you could, uh, yeah. Um, um, you're going off. I mean, to to, to have a, a, a the itinerant life of a conductor. But can you imagine forsaking the opera house? Or is this something that gets into your blood if you've actually been a music director in an opera house?
4: Yeah, it really does. And actually, the closer you get to the, I, I honestly thought I'd want a big break from from doing this kind of job. But actually, I really don't. I'd I, I'd, I'd love an I'd love another one. He's quite soon. Yeah, if you hear anything you know um but it's um because it's it's the it's I mean, it's it can be incredibly infuriating because there are. I mean, Paul brushed on it about you know where everything in opera is a grey area, isn't it? In every single de- department of of the company, we, n- no one's quite responsible for everything, and everyone thinks everyone else is, and you know, in a very in a collaborative way. But it's just it's you know, opera exists in the ether with all these different strands working, and no one really, none of us really know why it works or why it doesn't. And it's um so it can be infuriating, but it's the most privileged. Job in conducting to to look after a long term musical vision of a, of some of the greatest pieces ever written and, and you know that's let that's me something. play
0: Devils because I, I'm watching you in the pit for the dress rehearsal of of, of, of Green of Space. I suddenly thought you know your book to conduct. Uh, uh, an orchestra at the Festival Hall, the Barbican, Birmingham, Manchester, wherever. You walk on stage, the orchestra already, you've had rehearsals with him, you've had a run-through in the hall, uh, it's all over in, in one hour, mm. 30, one hour, forty, yeah. two hours. Mm. Here, you come into the opera pit, if it's a long, if it's Tristan Isolde, you're going to be here for four and a half hours. Yeah. You've not only got a huge orchestra in front of you, you've got all the things going on on stage. I mean, it seems to be a recipe for, you know, a, a very early retirement to, to a home somewhere did <laughs> to conduct yeah. opera.
4: It's, it's it just, you, you never deal with any opera the way you think you're going to. It's very strange that some pieces give you an extraordinary sense of elation at the end to conduct. Master singers, once we got in the performances, the rehearsals were exult, I found completely draining, but the performances I, I, I loved. Um, anything by Berlioz is impossible. It just you just feel you, you just come out with a bad back three hours later it's, 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 it, um but you know you you aspire, it's, he he he's such a genius you, you you try for for his sake you know um yeah it's it, you're not you're never tired in the way you expect i think
0: we have a little time ladies and gentlemen, so if you would like to ask any of our guests questions, this is the moment. There's a roving microphone, about to rove. If you'd like to put up your hand, catch my eye, I will direct the microphone to you. Do you have
4: like I to just have one tiny addendum, I yeah. wish I had to fess up to pause, I break a lot of his props in rehearsals <laughs> because, because in the breaks I obsess with playing with everything on stage. Um, to such an extent we, we, we devised a game of wheelchair darts in Votsek. <laughs> Were you around for that? That's
0: why you had to go. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Very good, very good. You know he does want to do a Tyrannosaurus Rex on stage, so so stick around. Do we have a question, anybody? Yes, over there. The microphone's on its way.
3: A very simple question. Um, A scary moment in the pit, your scariest moment in the pit.
0: Scary moment in the pit, Edward.
4: Oh, yeah. All right. um, the, there is i mean the, the first of all you have to engage with the fear of what, whatever it is that you 're scared of i mean it's it, it, there's, there's, that sounds a totally arbitrary thing to say but it's um i mean anything can go wrong at any time you 're kind of aware of that as I was on the first night of Cellini for instance, but it didn't which is great, but it could have done you know so you have you there are some pieces that you feel you 're walking on eggshells a bit um I don't know. There have been there have been blackouts before the final bars of pieces in in the pits, so the orchestra sort of improvised in a Robbie Coltrane way for a for, for a minute or so. What was it? The end of Tosca, I think it was. Amazingly, it was the end of Tosca. Yeah, um, things go wrong in opera, you know. It's, and you, I don't know. I try and I don't know. I I, I try and diffuse all that actually, and not, not not think too much about it. the The hardest thing is when you don't feel like the set projects the sound for the singers enough, actually. That's, that's scary. That's genuinely scary. If the orchestra can't hear what the stage is doing, what the singers are doing, and vice versa, that's, that makes conducting almost impossible.
0: Another question. Who would like to ask another question? Do we have it? A... Yes, in the front row.
4: What's your opinion, and does it make a great deal of difference to you when you're conducting for a transmission of opera to cinemas around the country? Mm, um, It doesn't make any difference to me at all, but then my back's to the audience, and no-one's looking at me anyway. I mean, conductors have such a strange relationship with the the public, don't they? But everyone is more nervous. There's nothing you can do about it. The orchestra, the chorus, and the principals are, know that they're being analysed in the most minute. Well, not, not so much the orchestra actually, because it is so. Su- it's such a visual thing. Um, uh, th- they're being analysed in the minutest detail, and it's. I think it's really scary, actually. I mean, it, now now everyone's getting used to it. All the, all the Met artists have been doing it now for what is it, five, six years, seven, eight years, and we've we've had a fair few ourselves. So, it's um yeah. And uh, successful. I, I saw Peter Grimes here. I think it was on Thursday night. The following Monday night, I saw it in the local cinema. Yeah. And I was equally impressed with both of them. Brilliant, brilliant,
0: great. But it's not the same as being in the opera house, is it? No, and so actually. So she played Devil's Advocate.
4: Yeah, it's uh, it's um. this word outreach is very difficult. I mean, it, when you use it educatively, it's 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 gold. But the idea that we're actually. God, this is a bit contentious for, for free show, sorry. Um, the, the idea that we're reaching out to people by playing them cinema broadcasts, I don't agree with at all, actually. Unless they're coming in to see opera here. Because it's a different thing. There, there's a whole gen, my generation has grown up without any mostly without any acoustical sound, only acoustical sound. So the understanding of what it is we do here. You know the thrill of a singing over a hundred acoustic musicians. It's it's people don't people don't know what it is anymore. Well, I sound old, don't I?
0: <laughs> no, 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 no. Not a, never never <laughs> let it be said. Let it gentlemen, We've we I think probably reached the end of our allotted time. Um, I want to say thank you to all of you for being here and for the questions for those of us. Um, I want to thank thank you to all our guests, but I also want to say on your all your behalves and my own a thank you to Edward for a remarkable period here as music director. You've given enormous pleasure right the way through your time here um, there's been a sense of palpable excitement when you've been in the pit, others too, but you too. Thank you very much Protection indeed for all you've done. Thank you. <laughs>